Last week I preached on generosity, and because I love preaching about giving and generosity so much, I thought I would do it again today. So today will be part two of a two-part sermon on generosity, and I just want to say at the very, 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 very beginning that Everything I'll get into this morning, and we have a lot to get into. The New Testament has a a good deal to say about generosity, about giving, about money, about how we do it, why we do it. We have to start with the gospel. Until we get the gospel right, generosity will never follow. Or generosity will be there, but it'll be for all the wrong reasons. So we have to understand, brothers and sisters, friends, what God in Christ has done for us. And until we do, our hands will stay like this. And when we do, our hands will slowly, generally, slowly start to open and we'll start to live generous lives. When we understand, brothers and sisters, that God has given us more than we could ever deserve, generosity is a no-brainer. I mean, do you really believe? I was just joking with Rose, but not joking. Do you really believe that what you deserve is hell? (laughs) That's what the Bible says. News alert, we've sinned against the holy God who's not happy about that. But he loves us so much that he sent Christ, his precious son, to bleed for us to bleed and suffer on levels that we can't even imagine because of our sin. Suffering on a cross, the shame and humiliation and embarrassment of death for crimes he didn't commit, for your crimes and my crimes, so that everyone who turns away from their sin puts their faith in this Christ and this cross will be forgiven, can have all of their sins removed. There is a fountain filled with blood that can wash away all of our guilty stains. Do you believe that? (laughs) If you believe that, your hands will start to open. And generosity becomes possible. Again, I'm not saying that only Christians are generous. There are lots of generous people in the world who don't care anything about Jesus, the Bible, the gospel. But their generosity is flowing from a desire that is focused on themselves, promoting themselves and their righteousness, not a desire to worship and serve and respond to the Lord's grace. We have to begin with the gospel. We have to begin with Jesus before we can really understand generosity. But the Bible does have a lot to say. The New Testament has a lot to say about generosity. That's why I chose to break this <laughs> into two sermons and write an article about it. Uh, please, if you weren't in here earlier, grab the article that's on the foyer, the, the table in the foyer, on part of this um, text, 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul argues a basic truth that when we give, our giving doesn't just evaporate. When we give, something happens. Just as when a sower sows seed, something happens. So more on that, uh, for more on that, see the article. Last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7. Uh, This week we're going to kind of be all over chapter 8 and chapter 9. You can begin finding your way to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's page 900 in your pew Bibles. 
Last week we saw the first part of chapter 8, how God's grace had enabled the poor and struggling churches of Macedonia to give generously toward a collection for the church in Jerusalem. I talked about how these Christians gave generously to a bunch of Christians they didn't even know. Paul used their example, the example of these Macedonian churches, these other churches, to encourage and exhort this church in Corinth to give, to also give generously toward this collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Now, I said last week, too, that the Holy Spirit inspired this text um, for our sake so that we also might be encouraged through the example of the Macedonian churches to give generously toward the needs of the world. I said that the Macedonian churches stand as an indictment to churches in our culture because they gave generously out of their poverty while we give stingily out of our wealth. To back that claim up, I referenced research showing that American Christians on average give 3% of their household income to churches and charities and that one out of every five Christians in America don't give anything at all to anyone. One of the main reasons I said that this is the case is consumerism. We have believed the lie of our culture um, to see needs as wants, to think that spending the vast majority of our money on ourselves is normal, right, good, and okay. So 3% for others, 97% for ourselves, we've assumed is good, right, and okay. We talked about how the best antidote to this way of thinking, this consumeristic culture, is giving. <laughs> Just start giving. More on that later. Why? Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, that our hearts always follow our treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We talked about other ways we can kill consumerism, live radically simple lives for the sake of greater generosity. Lots of questions come up on this topic. I hope you'll send me some for this week's Wednesdays in the Word podcast episode. Perhaps the one question that most of us struggle with the most or have thought about the most is this question. How much should we give? The average Christian gives 3% of their household income. Why is that a problem? What are you saying, Pastor? How much should we give? John, just give me a number. (laughs) This is what you want. Just give me a number, Pastor, and I'll do my best. I'll pray about it. Well, here's what I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to give you a number. (laughs) The question is often framed like this. Do Christians have to tithe? Do Christians have to tithe? Are we obligated, commanded to tithe? The word tithe literally means a tenth part or a tenth. So tithing is giving one-tenth of our income to the Lord. It was a part of life in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. There were two tithes every year, the Levitical tithe and the festival tithe, There was a third tithe every third year called the charity tithe that the Israelites were commanded to give. Now, what happens is, as we consider the tithing principle, the tithing commands, I should say, in the Old Testament, is that godly Christians, Bible-loving Christians, Jesus-loving Christians start to disagree on how these commands relate to Christians. And this opens up a much bigger can of worms, namely, how does the Old Testament law apply to Christians in the New Covenant? So, there's some resources for you to dig deeper into this issue. Um, I'm going to give you where I've landed on this issue about giving, about tithing. This is where I've landed, and then I'll try to explain why. 
the New Testament does not command Christians to tithe, but it also does not cancel the tithe as a principle. The New Testament does not command Christians to tithe, but the New Testament does not cancel the tithe as a principle. We'll get into that in just a little bit. And I'll give you a really long sentence that you might want to write down because the New Testament says a lot about generosity, and I'm trying to summarize it in two sentences. So here's the summary of what the New Testament does make clear. So tithing not commanded in the New Testament. What does the New Testament say? Glad you asked. Here it is. Giving under the new covenant is enabled by grace, should be filled with joy, generous, sacrificial, driven by love, determined by the individual, based on income, regular and deliberate. Giving in the new covenant is integral to fulfilling the great commission and creates worship to God. That's where we're going this morning. And you're like, man, this is going to be a long sermon. Let me say that again. That's two sentences. I'm going to repeat it again. This is where we're going quicker than you might realize. Giving under the new covenant, enabled by grace, filled with joy, generous, sacrificial, driven by love, determined by the individual, based on income, regular and deliberate. Giving in the new covenant is integral to fulfilling the great commission and creates worship to God. So we'll get to that in a moment. First, I'm going to talk about the command or like thereof to tithe, for Christians to tithe. As I said, the New Testament doesn't command Christians to tithe. Theologian Thomas Schreiner up at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, says, quote, there are decisive reasons, decisive reasons for concluding that Christians are not obligated to tithe today, end quote. He points out that Because the temple, Levites, and whole sacrificial system have passed away, and because one of the regular tithes was to support this work, there's no need for the tithe. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus' followers are now a new priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. Thus, tithing isn't commanded for Christians because the reason, at least one of the reasons, for the command to tithe, namely to support the work of the priest, is no longer in effect. Because the tithe is tied to the old covenant, which is no longer in force, the tithe is no longer a command. The fact that Christians don't have to tithe is wonderful news because it means that we are no longer in need of the temple or the sacrifices or the Levites. Another reason the tithe is no longer commanded is because it's difficult to know exactly how much the Israelites were commanded to tithe. There were these three tithes, but, but it's interesting how the Old Testament talks about these commands. It's from your uh, livestock and from the produce of your, uh, of your crops. But what if you didn't have livestock? What if you didn't have crops? What do the artisans and the business people give? So there's some ambiguity on exactly how the tithe looked and worked in Old Testament Israel. There were commands to tithe, no doubt. It was, without question, more than 10%. Those who say that Christians are commanded to tithe run into this problem. They assume that that means 10%. But the Old Testament seems to suggest that it was actually closer to like 23% per year. 
20% most years, 30% every third year. So the command to tithe is not 10%. If you want to take that interpretive route, then you need to be requiring more than 10. You need to require something more like 23. So that's a problem. Some support tithing by saying that Jesus supported tithing. They say that Jesus commended the tithe when he says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 23, 23. At first glance, Jesus seems to commend tithing. But when we remember that he was speaking to the Pharisees who were the leaders in living out the old covenant, and that he says this before his death and resurrection, so before the new covenant was inaugurated, we understand he wasn't commending tithing to new covenant Christians. Jesus, we might remember, also commended sacrifices at the temple, Matthew 5, 23 and 24. That doesn't mean that we should offer sacrifices at the temple if the temple were rebuilt. Jesus, Galatians 4 says, that Jesus was born under the law. He spoke to those under the law about what they should do, not about what we who are not under the law but under grace should do. So at first glance, it might appear that Jesus commended tithing to all Christians when in fact I don't think he did. So the New Testament doesn't command Christians to tithe. This doesn't mean that there's nothing useful for us in the Old Testament commands. There are principles underneath all of the commands of the Old Testament that are useful for us. The tithe may not be a command, but it serves as a good template because of the example of not only the Old Testament commands, but God's people before the law of Moses gave a tenth of their possessions to the Lord. So, for example, Abram gave a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Jacob gave a tenth of his possessions to the Lord. This is Genesis 14, Genesis 28. So there's an example, two examples of those giving a tenth before the law was given. Jesus or the apostles never tell us not to tithe. So the tithe seems to be a good idea, even if it isn't a command. It can be a good starting point for our giving. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who wrote the book The Treasure Principle and Money, Possessions, and Eternity, which is out here on our table. He compares tithing to a baby's first steps. A baby's first steps aren't their last steps, and they're definitely not their, their best steps, but they're a start. He says tithing can be like training wheels, a mechanism to help us start giving. After a while, we don't need the wheels, he says. So I think it therefore seems wise to at least consider starting our giving at 10%. See where God takes it from there. College students, I would encourage you to start doing this as early in your life as possible. You're like, John, I don't have any money. I know. I know. I know. But you probably have something. So maybe you have $5. 50 cents would be a tithe. Just do the math. I'm trying to carefully say that this is not a command. So if you're not able to, and more on this later, but if you're not able to do the tithe, don't wallow and get swallowed up in false guilt. Especially college students. You're like, John, I literally have no money. My parents pay for everything. Praise God. One day you will have money. You should start thinking through these things. 
So obviously you're not going to be able to tithe right now. And I don't think that's disobedience. There are other ways for you to give. Give your time. Give your energy. Come help us trim bushes when we have church work days. Amen? The New Testament doesn't command Christians to tithe, but it doesn't cancel the tithe as a reasonable starting place for our giving. Now, that's kind of a broad principle specifically about tithing. What does the New Testament say about giving in general? Well, as I said, giving under the new covenant is enabled by grace, should be filled with joy, generous, sacrificial, driven by love, determined by the individual, based on income, regular and deliberate. It's integral to fulfilling the Great Commission and creates worship to God. Let's take these one at a time. First, our giving is enabled by grace. We saw this last week in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. 8, 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The generosity came from grace. Grace from God came to these poor churches and generosity resulted. We know that, that grace has come to us when every aspect of our lives is redirected to God and His purposes. So if you're not really into giving, then you might not have grace. You might not have experienced grace, the incredible charity of God. Because grace will create a wealth of generosity, this verse says, about the churches in Macedonia. So enabled by grace, next, should be filled with joy. There again in verse 2, their abundance of, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul says that one of the things that fueled the generosity of these churches was their abundance of joy. Not a little joy, but a lot of joy. Grace created joy, which then created generosity. So the Macedonian churches refused to, to let hard circumstances keep them from the joy of giving. A giving, Paul mentions two things. They were in a severe test of affliction. Okay, it's not like they had a bad day. They were in a severe test of affliction. Anybody amen that? Amen. Severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. Two bad things going on in their lives. But there was something else going on. Abundance of joy because of grace. I will never forget my grandparents enthusiastically supporting me on every mission trip I ever went on. And they didn't have anything. They lived on Social Security. They had no retirement. They didn't have anything nice, nothing fancy. But I'll tell you what happened. Every time I started raising money for a mission trip, they would give more than anyone else. And they would do so happily. They loved to give. They were happy about it. They were excited to talk about what God was doing and what my needs were. This is what grace does. Grace creates joyful giving despite poverty and affliction. The Bible also says that joy results from our giving. Jesus says in Acts 20, 35, It is more blessed, the word can mean happy, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All the children, listen carefully. <laughs> it is more blessed to give than to receive. Some of the happiest people you know are probably people who don't have a lot materially, but they live generously. Why are they so happy? 
because of what Jesus says. Because blessing follows our joyful giving. They give out a joy, and they get more joy as they give. It's a beautiful circle of joy. Joyful giving, joy comes when we give. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, says, The less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. So if you're lacking joy, seriously, seriously, just start giving more money away. It is more blessed to give. It is more blessed to give. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Look over in chapter 9, verse 7. There's another principle I don't want you to miss. Chapter 9, verse 7. Look how God responds to this kind of joyful giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is interesting. Paul says that God loves people who give in a particular way, not just people who give generally. God loves a cheerful giver, not just people who give with no joy. God sees our attitudes, not just our actions. God loves joyful givers, not givers who, who give because they have to or give under compulsion. Not givers who think about all the other things they could be doing with their money. Not reluctant givers. God loves joyful givers. Givers who give because they want to. Who don't worry about all the other stuff they're not able to buy. But who just give happily. God loves joyful giving. Why? Because it reveals a heart made happy by His grace. In other words, it reveals His heart. If you have kids, have you ever smiled upon your children? When they do something that... You see, you, you see that you do? They're reflecting you, and there's something joyful about that. Our joyful giving reflects God's joyful, generous, liberal giving, and He loves it. He loves it. God loves cheerful givers. So, enabled by grace, joyful giving. Next, our giving should be generous. We touched on this quite a bit last week, but quickly... Verse 2, chapter 8 says the Macedonians gave generously. God's grace to these churches produced a wealth of generosity. Lack of money or affliction did not keep them from being generous. Next, our giving should be sacrificial. Verse 3, they gave beyond their means. Chapter 8, verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, uh, testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. As I said last week, quickly, these Macedonian churches weren't giving from their surplus. They, they gave joyfully out of their poverty and affliction. They gave more than Paul may have even expected or may have even thought wise. They gave beyond their means. So there was sacrifice. They went without something so they could give to something else. Does that characterize your giving? Going without something for the sake of some other need. Generous, sacrificial. Next, our giving should be driven by love. Driven by love. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Then look down at verse 24. Chapter 8, verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So... Paul is saying that their love will prove to be a genuine result 
uh, of their giving. His argument is simple. No giving, no love. Prove your love is genuine by your generosity. Prove that your love is actually real love. So if we say, man, I, I love missions, I love Jesus, I love the church, and we give nothing, there's no joy, no sacrifice, no, <laughs> then we need to rethink how much we really love these things. No giving, no love. It's driven by love. It's a demonstration of, a proof of our love. The next principle is that our giving is something we must determine to do. It's determined by the individual. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says that giving should be determined by the individual. So chapter 9, verse 7, again, look at the first part of this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Give as you've decided in your heart. This principle is drawn right out of Exodus as Moses had, le- had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. They receive the law. God tells them to make a tabernacle. Um, listen to how they do this, how God tells them to go about funding this work of building the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 1 through 2, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him. It's interesting that he didn't say from every man. Then chapter 35, verses 4 and 5, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. And then verse 21 and 22, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So God told Moses to tell people to bring a contribution, but only people whose heart moved them, moved them to give generously to this work. Now, I I have a feeling that was thousands and thousands of people. I sure would have hated to have been one of the people kind of watching everyone file up to Moses who didn't feel so moved. But not everyone is moved to give equally to everything. Amen? We just aren't. So there's freedom here. There's freedom in how much we give. The principle is it should be determined by the individual. The reason this is important is because those who say, um, some even say that tithing is what you owe God not what you give to God. But according to these texts, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 and these Exodus texts, uh, giving to God is not supposed to be an exaction. It's not a tax. We don't pay our taxes to God. Giving wasn't just the result of punching numbers into a calculator. Giving was meant to be based on a heart-level relationship with the Lord who'd redeemed them. Back over in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. This, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. There's a relationship happening here that resulted in giving. The Lord in Exodus and now trusted, trusts, that His grace is enough to move His people to give generously. 
So God's not worried about this stuff. He gives his people redemption, salvation, and grace upon grace, and he trusts that his grace will so change your heart that generosity will happen. That many thousands and thousands of the people at Mount Sinai and the people in the church of God today will give generously. Not as an exaction or a tax, but as the result of a heart-level commitment and response to grace. So it's determined by the individual. This means every individual will look a little differently. There's no comparing. There's no competing. It will look differently for all of us. But the next thing I'll say is our giving should be based on our income. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice two verses. Our giving based on our income. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. They gave according to their means. And in verse 12, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Gave according to their needs, according to what they have. Paul says the principle in another way in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. And here's the principle. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. As he may prosper is the point. Every first day, every Lord's Day, set something aside for the collection that I'm going to get when I get there, Paul says, but do so according to the ways that you're prospering. Paul says that their gift should be proportionate to their Income. This principle also comes right out of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place where he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that He has given you. Everyone gives according to what they're able, according to the blessing that God's giving you. This is called proportionate giving. The principle is simple. You don't have to be an economics major to get this. Those who make more should give proportionately more. Our giving should be proportionate to our income, as he may prosper, according to your means. So, for example, those who make $100,000 a year should give, should usually give, a higher percentage than those who make $40,000 a year. By the way, if we consider it good and wise for our government to base the tax code on this kind of principle, then surely it makes sense in the church of Jesus Christ that those who have more should give proportionately more. This principle helps guard us from thinking that 10% is all we need to give, that 10% is some kind of ceiling. If we make tithing a rule, many will see their giving as faithful as long as they give 10%. But frankly, many of us, and probably most American Christians, can afford to give more than 10%. One writer says it this way, Quote, while tithing should not be advocated as a minimum contribution based on Scripture, 
the affluence of our country is such that giving at least 10% for the majority of Christians would be the natural application of this principle. He says affluent Christians giving 10% should not think that they have fulfilled the giving requirements of Scripture, end quote. And then um, in a sermon preached in 1982, year I was born, that makes me 38 if you're trying to do the math. <laughs> sermon Piper preached in 1982, Piper says, My own conviction is that most middle and upper middle class Americans who merely tithe are robbing God. How can he say that? Proportionate giving. Just because you have more doesn't mean that you have to live on more. It does mean that you should give more proportionately. Sadly, the exact opposite seems to be the trend in American churches. Research has shown that the poor, get this, the poor, this reminds me of the widow at the temple that Jesus points out, the poor are more generous than the middle class. And that when people move from the poor to the middle class, those same people become less generous because their perceptions of what is a need changes. But the converse should be true of us. As we make more money, we should start giving away larger percentages of it. This is why I talked last week about figuring out how much we need to cover our basic expenses and then give away the rest. That, that, that giving away the rest might be 2% if you're in college. It might be zero for right now. It might be three. It might be 10. It might be 20. If American Christians like us gave according to what we have, again, this is the principle, according to what we have, and as we may prosper, get this, the church would have billions of more dollars to use for ministry. Billions. In the research I referred to last week, sociologists Christian Smith and Michael Emerson estimate that if American Christians gave on average just 10% instead of the current 3%, the church would have an extra $46 billion to fund ministry. And then they spend like five pages listing all the things we could do with $46 billion. Now, think about what the church would have if we didn't view 10% as a ceiling. What if wealthy American Christians, like some in this room, started giving 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 80% of their income to the Lord? We're not even thinking that way, are we? Like 10%, done. But I'm not so sure that as he may prosper, according to their means, would justify such an approach. I think proportionate giving is the principle, which means if we have less we're going to give less proportionately. We have more, we're going to give more. And this protects us, again, from thinking that because the New Testament doesn't command us to tithe, then the amount doesn't really matter. No, the amount actually does matter, and the amount will vary according to what we have. Okay? It's not about the amount. It is about what we have and how much we're giving proportionately. Next, our giving should be regular and deliberate. Paul told the Corinthians to set aside money on the first day of the week. This is a passage in 1 Corinthians 16 I just read from. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This means that giving, Paul didn't view giving as spontaneous. 
Rather, giving was regular and planned on the first day of the week. First day of the week. First day of the week. Every week, do this. Giving faithfully means making a plan to give faithfully. Now, we don't necessarily have to give every week. I don't think this is a rule. But a regular, planned, deliberate approach is the principle. So we need to make a plan. Then we must follow through with our plan. Paul tells the Corinthians to follow through with their plan. Look back at chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 8.10, In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. Desire to give is not the same as giving. Desire must be followed by actual giving. One of the best ways to make this happen is, is make a budget for yourself or for your family. If you need help with that, please see someone, grab a friend, Grab Nicarab. We'd love to help you figure out how to do budgeting. Making and living by a budget will ensure that your desire to give translate to actual giving. Because let's be honest, what, what we usually do is we kind of just spend and pay our bills and check our account balance every now and make sure we're not going in the negative, right? But we don't have a plan. We don't have a plan. And so we're not able to give as generously and regularly as we could otherwise. So making a budget can go a long ways to helping us give regularly. Another tool that we can use is online giving. We don't have to do this, but it's a tool. Setting up a recurring gift online can be a good application of this principle from 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of the week, give in a planned, deliberate, regular way. Of course, if you'd like to give in person, that's great. We have little black boxes in each of our four years for those who'd like to give in person. One other way we can give deliberately that maybe many of us haven't considered, old or young, is what about estate planning? News alert, we're all going to die, and somebody's going to get everything we have. Have you considered giving something to your church as part of your estate? Why not let the last act of generosity that you do be to bless the mission and ministry of the kingdom of God. Yes, you know, the Bible says, the Proverbs talks about blessing kids and grandkids with an inheritance. I'm all about that. But generally, our kids are already doing okay. Generally, our kids are going to be fine. So I'm not saying, don't give anything to your kids, give everything to the church. But what if, what if, what if in your estate, you gave something to the church, something to push the mission of God forward while you're with God. <laughs> Have you considered this? Have you done it? Now, a lot of you are young. You're like, John, I don't need a will. I'm not going to die anytime soon. Well, maybe. Especially if you have children, I would strongly recommend you to, to write up a will. It's not too early to start thinking about these things. We don't want anything to happen, but we can be prepared for things that aren't foreseen. So this is just one way we give deliberately. We can give in a regular, planned, deliberate way. Many want to do this and give regularly, but struggle to because of debt they've incurred. And I'll tell you, Susie and I wrestled with this big time early in our marriage. Uh, we had a lot of debt and uh, we didn't know what to do. So we sat down with a godly brother from our church and we we're like, hey, we don't know what to do. And he said, Give faithfully. Let's make a plan to get out of debt. Give faithfully and watch what the Lord does. And he was right. The Lord never failed to provide for our needs while we were 
trying to get out of debt, and trying to give faithfully, God provided. God provided. The, the general rule of thumb might be that ordinarily, if you have income, you should be giving something. Ordinarily, we should be giving if we have income, even if we have debt. Now, some people know, as I said, that they're, they're not giving as they should be. They wonder how to get started. Grab a friend. Grab someone in the church that you trust to look over your budget with you. Talk through your reasons for not giving. Maybe it's just plain stinginess. Well, please repent of that and receive God's forgiveness. The best thing to do is to just start giving to your church. The only way to make this a regular habit of your life is to start somewhere. So again, I plead with college students, even if you have pennies, just start the regular, deliberate, planned discipline of giving to your church. And I should just say, again, as I said last week, this message is not because our church is hurting. We're fine. (laughs) God has provided for us more than we need. So I'm not concerned about our bottom line. I am concerned about your faithfulness in every single area of your Christian discipleship. That includes your money. In fact, Jesus has more to say about money than hell. He considered it very important and indicative of where our hearts were at. One final thing, I said that giving generosity is integral to fulfilling the Great Commission. What do I mean by this? Have you ever considered that really the way that the Great Commission gets fulfilled through time is through generosity of Christians? What do I mean by that? Well, missionaries have to be supported. How do we send missionaries without money? Pastors who are teaching churches all that Jesus has commanded us to obey, they need to be supported, and for 2,000 years they have been. So the Great Commission advances through generosity. Our giving is the gasoline that makes the engine of the Great Commission go. More giving, more Great Commission. Another way to say this, just to be more explicit, is when we give, we should give towards pioneers and pastors. Pioneers, what I mean by that is uh, missionaries who are taking the gospel to the unreached areas of the world. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about receiving financial help from other churches while he was in Corinth preaching the gospel. He didn't want to be a burden to the unbelievers he was preaching to, so he received outside financial support from other churches so he could focus on preaching the gospel. This is a good and wise principle and approach. Paul even expected the churches he planted to support him and his team as as he moved on to other unreached places. Listen to what he says to the Roman church. He hasn't even met these people. He says to the church in Rome, I hope to be helped on my journey to Spain by you. I will leave for Spain by way of you. (laughs) Hey guys, I don't even know you, but when I get there, you're going to give money to my mission work in Spain. (laughs) Why? Paul's assumption was that the gospel goes forward through the generosity of local churches. We support pioneer missionaries. This is not an unfair expectation for us as churches today to be supporting as much as we possibly can church-planting missionaries. Our giving also goes to support pastors in local churches. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This isn't always possible in every church, but ordinarily churches should pay their pastors, those who labor and preaching and teaching, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. 
This principle is also found in Galatians 6, 6. One who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Those who are taught should share a portion of their material goods with those who teach them. What's cool about this passage is Paul's concern is larger than money. His concern, his larger concern, is that the ministry of the word would be able to continue in these churches. He's not asking for these churches to support him. He's asking for these churches to support the ministry of the word. So what does he care about? The ministry of the word. Churches who value the word being taught will be willing to pay pastors to teach them the word. An application of this is that since the local church is, or at least should be, our primary source of teaching, it should be the primary source of our giving. We may want to give to every good cause that comes our way, but our local church should be the place we prioritize because it's the place where we are taught the word. And it's the place where we pool our resources to support pioneer missionaries and provide for the poor. So our giving is integral to the Great Commission. And all of this, if we could just tie a nice biblical bow on this, what does all this do? When we, not perfectly, but when we're trying to do all this as a church, what happens? Worship. Worship happens. Please look at chapter 9, verse 11. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The generosity of these churches created thanksgiving and worship to God. Verse 11, thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God. Verse 15, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. The grace of God produced joyful generosity in the people of God, which then produced worship to the glory of God. This is all I'm trying to say. Giving starts with God and ends with God. Giving starts with God and ends with God. His grace changes us to give generously and our generous gifts creates worship and thanksgiving and praise to His name. Giving is not about keeping the law, not about guilt, not about keeping the lights on at the church or keeping food on your pastor's table. Giving is about God. So to summarize again, the New Testament does not command Christians to tithe, but it doesn't cancel the tithe as a principle. Giving under the new covenant is enabled by grace, should be filled with joy, generous, sacrificial, driven by love, determined by the individual, based on income, regular and deliberate. Giving is integral to fulfilling the Great Commission and it creates worship to God. May God help us to give this way. May God help our giving to look like this and may God create worship for himself through our giving. Let's pray together.
Well, Father, I can't hope to know where everyone is on this issue, but I do know that many of us struggle. And uh, many of us love the things of this world, frankly, more than we love you. And um, we aren't living, perhaps, as faithfully as we could be. So please give us mercy and help and grace and wisdom to be faithful givers, to be generous to be sacrificial, to give out of joy and love. Help us to be diligent in making a plan. Help us to give according to our means. I pray that those who have more would give more. And I pray that those who have less would not feel bad for one single second that they can't give as much as they would like. I pray that you would bless the hearts of your people as they give as much as they are able to. Lord, I pray that through our giving, the Great Commission would be fulfilled. I pray that we as a local church would be able to continue to pay pastors to preach the Word of God, that we would be able to continue to support the spread of the gospel around the world, that our dollars and cents would be used by you to this great end, and that one day in heaven we'll understand finally that we never made a sacrifice. That all of our giving, all of our generosity, all of our sacrifice was worth it. So give us that eternal perspective, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.